namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa puttang tammang sankhang namasami This retreat now it's been how many days? Five. You can see how they uh, say the the effect of living uh, in this particular style. The amazing what uh, you know just like speech what that does when we talk a lot or or uh, distract our minds uh, with exciting uh, impressions and so forth then uh, when you leave the, this retreat I think you'll find uh, it quite uh, the world will be quite a kind of shocking place for you because you get you get accustomed to this level of kind of subdued um, silence and and kind of refined reflections, and then you go back to go to London. You'll find it a bit uh, kind of uh, like bombardment of the senses. But it does show that that how the nature of the mind itself, that isn't conditioned, is peaceful and calm and pure and intelligent. It's like the, the conditioning of your mind is is uh, done through just uh, circumstances. If we have good parents and and we have uh, fortunate circumstances and so forth and good health and whatnot, then we tend to at least get a set of conditions that are fairly amenable and pleasant or better than uh, than someone else's who doesn't have such opportunity. Some people have born into families that are, you know, in where they have terrible parents and pain and misery and and uh, get all kinds of wrong, uh, horrible, distorted conditions into their minds. And of course, if, if we think in terms of hatred and and selfishness and revenge and all that, then our life is a kind of hellish state. Uh, so we, 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 wherever we go, we tend to create those those kind of thoughts. If you've met p- people who've lived criminal lives, it's very their their minds are very much uh, uh, affected by that type of criminal type of thinking. Uh, it's uh, it's a way it's an outlook uh, on life and in a in a whole conditioned pattern of thought and attitudes and memories that that make their lives always one of fear and anxiety and and suspicion. But even the best conditioning still is conditioning, and it's not, and it still has its limitations. And when you're Say when you're mindful, then you're moving into 
what what the mind is really like before it was conditioned. It's it's, it's pure, reflective, peaceful. It has no no quality to it of being like red or blue or male or female or or Buddhist or Christian or or anything like that. That's why when we're when we're mindful, we're getting beyond just the conditioning and the identities that we have about ourselves and and the cultural uh, conditioning. So that's why we say it's not self, because the self, in the in the sense that we generally use it, implies uh, this this is the stuff that I have, me as a separate, emphasizing my separateness, me as a, a separate individual being, this person here, me with my problems and my views and my thoughts and my ways and my habits, is what we 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 uh, the way we think and the way the society uh, conditions us to think and what is generally considered normal behavior. A friend of mine recently died from cancer. Uh, she was only about 38 years old and uh, she'd been practicing meditation for a number of years and uh, she and when she was uh, talking to the kind of social workers and people that were medical profession trying to help her, they would they accused her of not I, not identifying with her cancer because she would talk about cancer as there is this cancer, but it's not mine. And of course, they they didn't understand it at all. They thought she was she was trying to deny her cancer, but. Of course, when she told me, I understood immediately, there is cancer, it's not mine. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the way the Buddhists uh, reflect on things, where, where we would, the, the worldly view is, I've got cancer, it's mine. And uh, that, that attitude uh, is, is one that, that tends to reinforce a sense of alienation and separation and division. We wonder why they, in modern life, it's so difficult to stay married or to to have a, a stable family or have two people live together uh, for very long without be with and, and being able to say uh, learn to uh, develop a, a relationship with each other on the level of self, and of course. Uh, in, in the Buddhist world, the, the Western people that are interested in Buddhism are all eager to, to develop relationships in the modern attitude of we've got to develop our relationship. Uh, we've got to understand each other. And, and, but in this way of thinking about me as relating to you and understand each other, all this, this kind of uh, way, modern jargon uh, and uh, that that one uses to talk about oneself tends to reinforce the alienation, the separation that we feel already. Isn't that modern life is one where we we emphasize our individuality, me, my rights, 
I'm a separate, unique, completely unique, separate person, personality, being, individual, independent. Don't be dependent on anyone. Don't give up your freedom for anyone. Assert yourself. Uh, prove that you can do it. Prove that you can, can be a success in the business world. Prove that you can be prime minister. Prove that you can assert yourself and stand up for your rights. And of course, whether you're a man or woman, this, this uh, whole sense of, of, of proving yourself uh, might you know, allow you to, to uh, do such a thing, emphasize your, yourself as a person. But as an emotional experience and as, as, uh, as a way of liberation from suffering, it, it's not going to work because it's, you're just going to feel very lonely, isolated, separated, alienated, because those perceptions are that way. Contemplate that. When I, when I talk about me and my feelings and, and my rights and my unique personality, my individual character, those, those very perceptions are always saying, I'm totally separate from you. From everyone. In, in the, say, um, the old uh, societies, I say, of a hundred years ago, there was much more identity with family, with, uh, with uh, relatives or extended family, which doesn't exist anymore. Now, I have no, I, I mean, I was brought up to be an independent individual. With my family, there's not much family identity. When in Thailand, when people ask me, well, do you have uh, any other brothers? I say, no, I'm the only son. And they say, well, what about your parents? Well, you know, they, uh, what about the, the family? And I never even thought of it. I'm a free individual. I can do what I want. My parents have no right to say anything about, to me, what I should do. You know, the, the family name. I don't, could care less about my family name. <laughs> have no, no sense of that I should procreate and carry and have it kind of extended for another generation. Because my conditioning was the modern, you know, you're an individual with rights, do, you're independent and you have the right to do anything you want to do. Then the result is that it made, me, made it very easy for me to become a Buddhist monk. My parents didn't dare say disrobe or anything. They, had to, they brought me up to assert myself, assert my independence and my rights, and that's what I've done. <laughs> so it has its advantages, and I'm not unhappy that, that, that that's the way I was brought up, and I'm not, I don't regret it. But as an individual personal experience, it, 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 may, it gave me a tremendous feeling of loneliness in my life. Because, uh, as, uh, because the, that way of thinking was uh, very isolating. It, it was very difficult to see, it, we all, one always saw another person in, 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 as something totally separate. With the same rights and the same privileges and and all that as myself. But when you've got two 
equal, separate human beings trying to work out their relationship, they're usually asserting their rights over each other. And of course then that, that ends up usually in uh, not being able to live together very long. <laughs> so, uh, in the, this, uh, say in terms of Dhamma then, what we're doing is we're getting beyond this, this emphasis on separation and alienation, individuality, personality, character, race, class, gender, all these things are, are they, they have their place in the conventional world, There's nothing wrong with them, but as attachments and identities, they're always going to create, they're always going to delude us. We're never going to find satisfaction, uh, enlightenment, or real happiness in being a man or woman, or being a English or Thai, or being uh, middle class or working class, or being young or old or whatever. There's, there's no way any of these identities, no matter how conventionally accurate they are, or you know how harmless they might be, or, or even altruistic ones, but that function of our mind is, is a discriminative, separative function, isn't it? Thinking is a, is a discriminative function of your mind. When we think, we, we, we see how things are different. And the language conveys the differences. How uh, we have the opposites, don't we? The duality to deal with with you, with me, subject and object, male and female, good and bad, right and wrong, high and low. Bigger, better, best, the worst, bad and so forth, these comparisons, levels of how things, uh, how things relate. One is is bigger or better or smaller or inferior or superior. So that function of our mind that we that's so educated and so exalted in modern society, also when, when, when we don't understand it and when we depend on it for for our identity, for a sense of ourself, it also is another form of, of alienation because its function is to discriminate. This is me and that's you, and I'm here and you're there. And there's, this is affirming the separation and the differences that we, that we see or perceive. So that is the, the way it is on this level of conditioned phenomena. And, and, if our, and if we expect the conditioned world to if we expect it to be anything other than what it is, if we expect it to be uh, a, a unity and, and to be a loving experience of harmony and unity, oneness, totality, deathlessness, immortality, uh, complete union, perfect relationship, and all the rest, it, we're, we're, we're asking 
this conditioned realm to do something that it is impossible for it to do. Not, that's not where unity is. It's not through emphasizing differences or identification with, with condition, conditionality, but in being, letting go of it, being able to free ourselves from that identity long enough to realize the unity, the universe, the oneness, or that that which the the community, the communion. And where is that then? What could that be? In, 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 as each one of us uh, appears at this moment to be separate indiv- uh, separate individuals. When there is mindfulness, then isn't there? Then there is that's that's where the differences are no longer emphasized. They're seen and recognized, but they're no longer grasped. They're no longer empowered through our identification. So that's why when we, in a, when we meditate, we, each one of us is dealing with the conditions that we're feeling, which is, is going to be different from someone else. What you're feeling right now isn't going to be the same as what I'm feeling right now. And, uh, and, and there's no, you know, it's, would be uh, impossible to find a unity or oneness or equality on the level of the conditions that each one of us is feeling at the moment. But in that perfect knowing of them, there is, that's unity, that's oneness. So that's why our refuge, say, in Buddha, Dhamma Sangha, implies that, in that perfect knowing. It's not personal. Buddha is not kind of my Buddha as opposed to your Buddha. My Buddha tells me some of these televangelists they say, I was talking to God this morning and he told me. (laughs) And he told me that Buddhism is a false religion. God seems to be, be uh, you know, what anyone, you know, the, when you talk about the, the, the Christians have a fine problem dealing with God because God is uh, is male, generally speaking, isn't it? Is um, it has God has attributes. God has a son. God has a spirit. God has a, a father up in heaven. And uh, then, then there's each interpretation of, like the the white man's god. Remember, in the old days, in the fifties or so, in the when in the in the, in the states, you know, they used to have these uh, churches with for black people and white people. And I remember I asked, why? Why do they? Uh, why can't they all attend the same church? If if we're all God's children, why do we have to have separate churches? One for black people, one for white people. They said, "Well, God created the races separate and wanted us to keep that, keep it separate." And so God wants the black people to be Christian, and He loves them just as much as He loves the white people. But He wants them to go to a separate church. <laughs> 
<laughs> I couldn't believe that. But that's uh, that's the kind of spurious reasoning that, that that you can think. You know, God wants apartheid, and I thought, well, he, if he wanted us to remain separate uh, and and didn't want us to mix, he did a terrible. He made a terrible mistake because we do find uh, that we're quite attracted to each other, and we <laughs> and we can. Uh, mix very easily and intermarry and so forth. Uh, if, he, if he wanted to keep them separate, you think he would have done a better job of making it more, you know, so it would be impossible to mix. So God becomes someone who, you know, who you think isn't, doesn't, isn't quite as intelligent as you are. <laughs> But taking this, the, say this, just for reflection, the, the oneness and the unity, because that and totality, these these kind of these words, point at something that that you can't uh, you can't see the totality of the universe in the position you're in, with with eyes or with with uh, any any of your senses. You can't. You can understand it as a concept, but a realization is through the intuition, isn't it? Through the intuitive mind, not through the discriminative mind. So you can't. You can't. Uh, you. You. When you're trying to to just figure it all out with words, concepts, you you end up kind of uh, going around and around with <coughs> with making it more complicated and difficult with theories about oneness, uh, the kind of modern philosophies and, and ideas that people think up uh, about it all, uh, speculative theories uh, that, that we can conceive of, but which we may not realize, because we are lost in our own thinking process. We get overwhelmed and lost and we 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 regard our thinking as as something more than what it is. We're identified with it. We're afraid to stop thinking. Sometimes we want to stop thinking. Sometimes we're so we we'd like our minds to just shut up and give us some peace, but we become so obsessed with ideas and thoughts, conceptual proliferation. That it uh, that that this this needs to be reflected upon and put in its proper context, because thinking is a great gift. I have nothing against thinking. It's it's a it's a miracle. It's 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 a marvelous gift we have. But how to use thought? How to put thought in its proper place so that it's not something that's turning against us or deluding us or causing us endless misery? And one of the most deluding thoughts we have is the thought of I am. And I am is a very powerful thought. This is me and mine and I am. But have you ever contemplated just this, this, uh, this, this, this 
two little words, I am, and me, and mine. This is mine. That's how we emphasize mine. Me. What about me? And what I think. Notice how I can, when I'm, when I'm emphasizing myself, my thoughts, what is mine, me, then, then th- this word is a tremendous power in, in, our, in our mind. It's, it's really empowered. And, it, and this word tends to, to always uh, uh, emphasize one's uh, separateness. Now it's not that this the word I am is uh, something that we shouldn't think it or is there something wrong with it. But what I'm asking you to do is contemplate it because it's, a, it's, it's something that you think all the time and that you uh, maybe could start looking at and, and ob- observing and reflecting on it so that you're not just under its influence. You're not just blindly empowering it all the time to, to create this, the the, the separative feelings, uh, the sense of alienation, the loneliness, the the lostness that that we oftentimes feel. The Buddha emphasized anatta or non-self. Not as a, not as a doctrine that uh, that we must believe. In we're not to grasp anatta as a doctrine, but as a suggestion to reflect upon. And so when we when we uh, investigate the five heaps, the five khandhas, we ask ourselves: Is this body mine? Is this what I really am? We're not trying to say the body's not mine not self, and, and then try to convince ourselves that we don't have any self. It's for investigation. Is this body really mine? Is this what I am as a body, human body? And if this is what I am, then, then uh, of course, it's, uh, it, it, um, what it looks like is me. And, and if I didn't get the very best of, of uh, physical uh, features and all the best, uh, the, uh, most attractive form and, and all that, then it's unfair. Why should somebody be born and, and have all the lovely features and, and beautiful complexion and all that? And why, why are some born uh, unattractive and, and um, you know, not, not with very good features and terrible complexion? It's not fair, is it? Because if the body is me, it's mine, uh, then I am this this body, and and of course even the most attractive uh, people get old, and the process of aging is not is not uh, is also one is gets old. If if the if the body's old, then I'm old. The body's male, and I'm a man. If the body's female, I'm a woman. I'm a white man. I'm a black man. And all these things have their their uh, conventional reality. We're not trying to to uh, deny the conventional reality of it, 
but put it in the in the perspective where we can see the ultimate reality where we're not we're no longer limiting our conscious experience to just the forms that we find ourselves with and identifying and and attaching and and then suffering from them because they're all going to fail us aren't they your body is going to fail you your your the people you love are go- you're going to be separated from from the people you love inevitably we have this reflection in morning chanting all that is mine beloved and pleasing will become otherwise will become separated from me it's what a sad thing to think monks do that every day all that is mine beloved and pleasing will become otherwise will become separated from me that's true isn't it we, everything that we love and attach to is going to eventually we have to be separated from it so in that identification with, with, uh, with the separateness we become frightened by it and it becomes we, we don't want to look at it we don't want to even think about it like the subject of death is, a, is, a, is not considered a very polite subject to bring up in, in the conversation talk about the roses the rose garden or the weather talk about Princess Di and Prince Charles anything but death Elizabeth Taylor's latest husband. There's nothing to do with our lives, and yet death does. Isn't it? Because this is what we're all going to to experience. And we all have to deal with the loss of loved ones in our lifetime. Unless we die very young ourselves. But most of us, most uh, all of us, and human beings, all human beings have these experiences loss of the love, death of the love, separation. And this becomes a source of anguish and fear and, and despair, sorrow in our lives until we reflect on it and understand it, is, is that it is this is the way of the conditioned realm. The conditioned realm is, is like this. We're accepting the conditioned realm for what it is. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying it should be any other way. But we're also recognizing that this conditioned realm is not mine and it's not yours. And, and when we take that to a realization, intuitive realization, we we realize there's nothing to fear, uh, there's nothing wrong, and uh, that, that all that arises and ceases or is born and dies are conditions, and, and that's it. That, the, that uh, we, we hold perceptions about, uh, uh, we're attached to, to various people or various things, and when, and when, we, when we have the perception that they're dead or they're, they're gone, then we feel this way. Or when, when somebody dies, and for example, when my mother died, 
uh, or say like somebody like Ajahn Chah, my teacher. Now he was incapacitated for ten years before he died. Now he was he was uh, couldn't speak and couldn't really respond very well, even though he was conscious. But for ten years, I'd, I'd go to Thailand and see him, and and uh, yet he was still alive. And even though he wasn't like the teacher that I knew, where, that could, that, where you could talk to, and and he would uh, give you really good advice and and someone you really enjoyed being with, because when he when he became ill, then he lost all that, and he just would lay there or sit in a wheelchair, and you couldn't. You could kind of talk at him, but he couldn't respond. But he was still alive. The perception of him was alive. He's alive. And then when he died last uh, January, it was different. Now, now the perception is Ajahn Chah is dead. And it's different, isn't it? It's a different feeling than Ajahn Chah is alive. Just, just on the, uh, just notice that what. What what the feeling of being alive is like, and and the the feeling of death. Life we can relate to, can't we? Because we're alive, and we can, we can, even if if Ajahn Chah is barely alive, at least he's breathing. That we can we we we're breathing. There's something in common. There's uh, he needs to be fed. He needs to be taken care of. He needs to be bathed and. And he sleeps and he wakes up and he does these things that we all can relate to as normal living activities of our human state. Life is this way. But when when he's dead, the, the idea of the, the perception of Ajahn Chah is dead, then we don't know, do we? It's different. Death is that I said before, what we do not know, what we haven't experienced. So it leaves our mind in the state of, of, of it goes blank, nonplussed. The mind it just suddenly stops with the with the word death, because it's it, it just as a as an emotional experience. Uh, that's how it affects me. Somebody's dead. Then it's it's like that. It's, but the mind, my mind stops. I don't know what to think about that. It's the unknown. The self is is when when we when we think about people, isn't it? When we think about each other, we're usually holding uh, perception uh, of somebody. We we it's so easy. We're so conceited. We think that our perception is the real person. So even if I should think Ajahn Chah is alive, and he's not, I still, you know, I can still think I can. And people wanted to, even when Ajahn Chah was alive, these past ten years, people wanted to project onto him all kinds of things. Well, you know, he can't respond, but he's fully alert, fully enlightened. Uh, even though he can't speak and can't move. Uh, he is this way and he is that way is one you know what how you want him to be uh, what you want Ajahn Chah to be you you project onto him you make it up in your mind 
and project it onto him. Uh, and then if we if we can't stand the idea of just abiding with the with the with the not knowing that death gives us, then we tend to think, well, Ajahn Chah is now, you know, freed from the mortal coil and uh, probably now having, you know, looking at us with a smiling face, freed from the the uh, the limitation of a paralyzed physical body and so forth. And we're thinking nice thoughts of uh, of uh, how we would like Ajahn Chah to be right now. As, because to think of him as dead, the mind stops, and then we want to—we don't want to just leave it there. So we tend to to think about him in terms that we can that we can uh, accept and find soothing and peaceful, like he's probably here right now, smiling at us, and things like this. Is my mother died? You know, I thought you know, people would ask me about the subject of death because uh, I was giving this meditation retreat and and I and I thought yeah well death is you know I don't know but and then then my mind started thinking but she was a very nice person I'm sure she's you know in some heavenly place I can't imagine her going the opposite direction <laughs> And uh, wouldn't be, couldn't imagine her in hell. She didn't, wasn't that kind of person. But uh, I could imagine my mother in heaven. I can imagine my mother in heaven right now. She was a kind of person that would go to heaven. So that's, but that's in my mind, isn't it? That's what I'm making up in my mind. Fair enough. But but we're just looking at the way it is, what we do. What we, how we perceive each other. Is my mother the perception that I have of my mother? And when I really look at it, I see it's merely just, I have this, this image of her. And now, the, now, the, now that perception is, is now connected to the word death where before she died it wasn't. And so we, we begin to see this, the discriminative uh, mind and how it works and understand it and, and be able to liberate ourselves from, from just being caught up into to going on and on and on with that, with that uh, uh, conceptual proliferation, the wandering mind. Now in Intuitive mind. What do we mean by that? Because we we have uh, we use the word intuition, and we recognize that it's not a function that is highly regarded in the Western world. It usually say you know women's intuition, and and it's put down a bit as not being very valid or believable, uh, and 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 uh, it's not regarded as anything worth. Uh, talking about or developing because discriminative mind has been so exalted and elevated as the be-all and end-all of human attainment. You know, like Bertrand Russell and people that have a fantastic discriminative mind, super intellects that could just work on subtle levels of thought and 
and the discriminative uh, and discrimination. Marvelous geniuses, high IQs, modern education to how to increase the IQ, how to only concern with the examination system here in Britain recently, emphasizing the importance of discriminative knowledge and learning, intellectual development. But we pay a price for that, don't we, in the West? Because something in us doesn't develop very strongly. Something is a something in us is not a need, a, a basic need, a, a spiritual need is not being met in our society anymore. And in fact, spiritual needs are considered not very important. Religious education is almost an afterthought. And uh, and this is the decade for evangelism here in Britain to try to make everybody into a Christian. Because Christianity is, uh, you know, kind of, it's a spiritless form. It doesn't have much oomph these days. So we've got to kind of push it back and get it, blow it up again and inflate it and force it on everyone. But is that the way to, to, to teach spiritual development? Just by indoctrinating people with religious ideas or prejudices or biases? Or are we now maybe more prepared to, to develop this reflectiveness of mind and to develop the intuitive faculty to, to, to try to uh, use that more, to recognize it as, as a function or an ability that we have as human beings, which means to me, when I use that word, it's, it's the receptivity of the mind, the sensitivity of the mind in the moment. Intuition is here and now, it's not memory. So it's not, it's not intellectual, it's not you don't remember. You don't, it's not a, it has nothing to do with memory or with perception of things, but with being able to sense or with the sensitivity of, of this form to, to, to feel what is happening now, the way it is now. Now we all affect each other in, and we have, uh, if you notice, and we can, just the way somebody looks or walks or moves or conducts themselves, we, have cert- we find ourselves kind of uh, reacting to them. In, uh, I noticed when I lived in Thailand, I lived in Thailand for 10 years, and I became used to the way the Thais moved. And in Thailand, the way they move is, is that they, even the men, try not to look very aggressive, so that they have movements in which uh, they, they try to, to kind of bend down and, and move in a, in a way that does not... Uh, startle you or in any way convey aggression because like aggressive movements make you jerk and contract, doesn't it? If I should suddenly leap at you, you'd go like that. Or if I should just stand up suddenly and flex my muscles and, well, you know, that you're going to feel uh, a sense of, you know, just in- intuitively you're going to, 
you're going to pick up something that is that you that you'll react to. Maybe you'll not. Maybe you won't recognize it so much because you might be all kind of filled with your own problems and ideas in your head. But it's still we still affect each other very much. Just how we uh, appear to each other and the way we we relate to each other or move, react to it. So I remember uh, having to go back to the States after so many years in Thailand and um, getting on a plane in Bangkok with, that was filling up with, with uh, European uh, tourists. And I remember that because I was a monk, they put me on the plane, they conducted me to the plane first. So I was the first per- passenger on the plane. And I was sitting there in the seat and then all these kind of Europeans started walking down the aisles, and men with big noses and jutting chins and broad shoulders and walking <laughs> like this, and suddenly I felt myself contracting, I felt frightened. <laughs> and not that any of them were, were threatening me in, uh, in, you know, physically, they weren't kind of looking at me in unpleasant ways, but it was, it was just the, you know, picking up this, the, the, the movement, when when say my my senses had been come, become accustomed to say Thai monastic life, Thai monks, Thai people when they're in monasteries, which is, is a different the, the the way that one moves and and conducts oneself, uh, it would not that would not be considered uh, proper to to walk like that or move like that, and it's cultural, isn't it? It's, but we do get used to your, 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 you, what you get used to, uh, then that, that uh, is how you tend to, to interpret uh, the experience. So sometimes we must, you know, we, we find people would say, in Thailand might think we're just very aggressive, People with with a lot of anger because sometimes we walk like that and we we you know we our faces can can look quite fierce and we move in an aggressive way which conveys all the signs of, of you know this this man is 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 angry and and is going and, and aggressive when actually in my mind there may be nothing like that going on. I mean sometimes I hear what people think project onto me and it shocks me because they think, you know, they think in, in terms of uh, because I'm so big and whatnot that they, they they think all kinds of things that I, I can't see in myself. I see some kind of gentle kind of um, <laughs> well-meaning, <laughs> soft, softy, And yet other people see other things. And when I hear that, sometimes I'm quite surprised by how, how people, what people pick up. And, and it's not that they're making it up, but they recognize that, 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 that we do affect each other in this way, and we tend to interpret it according to our own emotional reactions and, and habits and emotional needs.
So when we're reflecting on this, we're, we're just observing it so that we know that this is the way it is. And then when we free our minds from these attachments and, and uh, to, to just the force of habit and the prejudices and biases that, that we have, when we, when we see through that, then our intuitive mind is, is operative. Because where intuitive people sometimes misinterpret uh, things because they don't they don't see it in terms of dharma, they oftentimes uh, interpret it in all kinds of strange and crazy ways. I remember down at Chitterst, uh, meeting years ago, meeting people uh, who very intuitive women would come uh, sometimes at Chitterst, and they talk about all their experiences, you know, with, with, with life. And, and I found it very difficult to understand in the terms of the way I would perceive the world because, because I, uh, when I tried to just go by, by the uh, words they were using, the descriptions they were giving, it sound, some of it sounded a bit balmy to me. <laughs> but, but then I recognized they weren't balmy but they were trying to talk about something that wasn't a rational experience or wasn't, wasn't uh, conventionally, uh, uh, doesn't have conventional perceptions to apply. I mean, there's no, there's no agreed language or way of discussing it. So we oftentimes are stuck with trying to talk about the things in us and the experiences we have with, with the uh, language and the conditioning of the mind that we have, and we can, we can sound quite uh, crazy. Or we can give the wrong impression, or we can completely, uh, you know, s describe our experiences in ways that, that, that the people listening uh, have no possible idea of what, what we're actually talking about. Because the, but when we are training in this way through meditation, we, we have like in, in the teachings of the Lord Buddha, when we use the Pali teachings and the, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Paticca Samuppada, and the, all these lists, uh, uh, lists of, of things that, that oftentimes uh, uh, sound quite strange to the Westerner, you have the 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas, the four efforts and the four Itipatas and the, and the four noble truths and the five Palas and the five faculties and, and the, the five Khandas and the six Ayatanas and it goes on like that. We have books of just lists of, of two, three, four, five, groups of five, groups of six, groups of seven and on and on like that. But it does provide us with a, when we study these, these, these teachings and we apply them, we, we learn to interpret our experience with these, with these kind of lists. It, it gives us a common language that we can, we begin to, to uh, say, use in which we can, uh, then we can communicate our own individual experiences, unique uh, totally unique experiences, individual experiences, in terms of Dhamma, rather than 
in terms of self. If it's interpreted in terms of self, then it, it can be very misleading and, and very isolating. People will think you're, you're just uh, maybe want to lock you up in a mental hospital. I'm sure that a lot of people are locked up in a mental hospital just because they're trying to talk about <laughs> something that they don't quite know how to what how does how to talk about it. They don't have the nobody knows the, the, you know the, some experiences we have are so unique and so uh, individual that uh, when we try to convey it to somebody else they they, they don't they can't uh, it just sounds crazy. <coughs> now even sounding crazy in, is Dhamma, in, in, isn't it? Even going bonkers is still Dhamma. Nervous breakdowns are Dhamma. Uh, everything can be seen in terms of Dhamma when we, when we begin to appreciate this, this refuge in Dhamma. That we're in, in, in our experience of meditation here, even if you have the most insane, absolutely uh, crazy, uh, maniacal thoughts, memories or feelings, if you're seeing it in terms of Dhamma, you're seeing it in, in that perspective of arising, ceasing, not self. In this way, you can resolve a lot of the fears and the the, uh, in fact, all of the fears and the obsessions of your mind, uh, that and and the, even the trivialities of your mind, like if we're identified with being well-educated, intelligent uh, citizens, uh, then when we have trivial thoughts or foolish or stupid thoughts or feelings, we tend to to want to get rid of them and and uh, feel embarrassed or just re- reject want to reject that side. We don't want to have those thoughts in our minds. Silly, foolish, inane thoughts. But in meditation now, that's why when we're, when we're mindful, then we're allowing these, these kind of thoughts, whatever they might be, whatever their quality is, into consciousness. But we're seeing it in the terms of Dhamma, rather than judging it as personal... Uh, on a, on a personal level of, of mind, which if it's stupid, then we then we end up thinking we're stupid. And nobody, we don't want to think of ourselves as stupid, so we, we, we oftentimes have ways of just pushing aside anything that is stupid in our minds, just kind of defending ourselves, rejecting it before it, it becomes conscious. It's quite wonderful when you think of meditation as allowing yourself to have a, a mindful, nervous breakdown. <laughs> Rather than having a nervous breakdown, a heedless one, which you would take very personally as some kind of personal failure and, and be uh, terribly embarrassed and frightened by it, <laughs> you can now have one mindfully, and it'd be kind of like a purification process, something that, that like you're, you're, you're cleaning out your mind, you're letting out all the, the stuff that, that, that accumulates, the, the, 
the guns that just kind of hangs and clutters up and blocks up your mind, you let you clean it out. So what comes out can be unpleasant, disgusting, but at least it's coming out. Like an enema. <laughs> what comes out isn't very nice, but it is cleansing. It's taking the what is uh, filthy and what is un- uh, what is causing us bad health and pain and, and suffering, and cleaning that out. So, regard it also in that way that, that fears, uh, all kinds of fears or foolishness, silliness. Uh, irrational thoughts, crazy thoughts, whatever, if they happen, if you feel these coming into your mind, don't be, don't think that you're meditating in the wrong way. This is like you're releasing these and through the door of consciousness you're letting them go. The resolution of them, resolving them. They're not self. These are, these are not self. If you start having crazy thoughts and you still interpret it as self, then what are you? You're crazy. Crazy person. <laughs> but if you're having crazy, if there's crazy thoughts going through your mind and you're seeing it in terms of Dharma, then it's just Dhamma. What arises ceases. It's not it's not, it's not, there's no, you're, you're breaking through the, the, uh, that con- conviction that you are the conditions of your body and mind. So that's why there's nothing to be frightened of, and you can uh, you can uh, fear itself is dhamma. Uh, the um, all the, the, because fear tends to to uh, be such a powerful emotion. We need to put it in its proper perspective and so when when there's fear go to it acknowledge it embrace it bring it into your consciousness don't be frightened of fear let fear be frightening but don't be frightened of it and then of course it 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 is like any other dhamma a conditioned dhamma what is subject to arising is subject to ceasing So this is like a, a cleansing process in which the the conditioned realm is then uh, something that you uh, use for practice, but no longer yourself. You no longer identify. You no longer seek to hold on to it. You no longer expect it to be something it cannot be. You can live with it. You can adapt. You can... Uh, respond, you can move, you can roll with the flow, you can do what is necessary, there's nothing that, that you're, you're capable of of living your life in a truly sensitive way and responding 
uh, in appropriate and suitable ways to the uh, things that happen. Because you're then on this level of intuition, you're, 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 you trust in your own ab- ability as an individual form to, to, be, to be able to pick up the way things are. To be able to respond to, to the situation you're in. Intuitively, rather than just a, uh, an emotional reaction. Because emotional reactions oftentimes are very unsuitable or inadequate to a particular thing, isn't it? We can get it all wrong and react very badly and and, and uh, make a fool of ourselves if just on the level of the emotional reaction. But on the on the intuitive plane, then there's we can abide in the silence. We can speak. We can get up and go. We can stay. We can say what is appropriate, we can do whatever needs to be done. But that is that is according to an intuition and the sensitivity of a moment rather than a, a plan or a recipe. And that can be rather frightening because many people would like to have what should I do if this happens? They'll give you they'll give you these kind of moral dilemmas. If if uh a man attacks a Buddhist monk, can a Buddhist monk uh, stop the man from from uh, attacking him, from hitting him? Would a Buddhist monk, would we, because we're not supposed to commit violent acts, should we just let somebody hit us? Or should we defend ourselves? Should we maybe stop that man? Or should we actually maybe hit him back? Or should we uh, run away? <laughs> moral dilemmas, you know. Trying to, if, if, you're, if you're following the logic, if, if a Buddhist monk is not supposed to hit anybody, what would you do if a maniac attacks your mother? That's a real setup, isn't it? <laughs> Because logically speaking, you know, if you're not supposed to hit anyone, then that means that you couldn't hit the man uh, who's attacking your sweet little old mother. Maniac is a is a nasty brute, and mother is usually a sweet little old ladies. <laughs> And if you're a man, you wouldn't you wouldn't let a maniac attack your mother. So that must mean that you're not a real man because you just you're you're a, a cowardly Buddhist monk. A yellow robe <laughs> means a yellow stripe down your back. <laughs> means you're a chicken. And you you just just to keep a rule, you'd let this terrible brute attack and and harm your own mother. How could? And of course, this is a, a kind of moral intimidation. But I trust that if um, if such a situation ever occurs, it can't now, as my mother is no longer alive, and she died from old age, not from a maniac attacking her. (laughs) 
So it was never a real problem in my life. But, but uh, also, I trust that if I'm mindful, if I develop the way of mindfulness, then I would know what to do, whatever that is, in, if, if such a situation should occur. Contemplate that. If we, when we're, what we're doing now is developing a way of, of being open and receptive, mindful, intuitive in the moment. And then how we respond to a situation. You have to trust in that. Rather than wanting me to make the moral prescriptions and, and tell you what you should do if a maniac attacks your mother. Should you hit him or should you just let him or should you uh, kill him or throw yourself on top of your mother or Because you can't, you know, that's, the, that's an unfair question, isn't it? You can only speculate. I don't know what I'd do. Because my mother's not here, a maniac's not here. The conditions are just, it's only up in the head, isn't it? So you could, you could speculate about all kinds of things. You know, that you, if you wanted to, if you're working on that level, you can, you can, you can turn it any way you want. And, uh, but, when you are, say, developing the way of mindfulness, then, then you begin to have confidence that in any particular situation, whether it's just ordinary daily life, just the humdrum, mundane routine of daily living, or uh, a special event, or, a, ter- or a, a, a tragedy, or a disaster, that through mindfulness, we would be able to respond and do the right thing, whatever that is. Because that, that, seems, that is right, isn't it? We, if, we, if we are mindful, then we, we have we will know how to deal with with a maniac attacking our mother. If we're stuck in in fixed views about what we should do, we might we might make everything worse. If we're just operating from prejudices, biases, and fixed views, we can we could make a, a terrible mess a bloodbath out of something that could be averted if we if we'd been mindful so so realize that what you're doing here and this retreat is is something to uh, apply to your daily life and and to the ordinariness of life that this this grounding that we talk about on the breath and on the the body and the Sound of silence and this way of of bringing uh, bringing your attention to the way things are. To be able to to bring up all your fears and desires into consciousness, let them come up. You don't have to go and kind of search them out, but when it's time for them to come up, then 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 let them be what they are. Let them take whatever form, no matter how frightening or how boring or silly it might be, because you're, you're seeing it now, and, and as what arises ceases. 
is not self. And because of that, then you don't have to be anyone. You you don't have to you don't have to be uh, any type of person. You can adapt. You can your responses are then appropriate to to helping your mother and father to performing your duty in the in the society to uh, your children. Your you're not you're not just acting out roles and performing duties out of just uh, stupidity and ignorance, but you're able to respond to life uh, and adapt and to to be able to act in many different ways. You're not thinking of I'm going to I myself and I don't have to and I'm this way and fix yourself into one role that may be very uh, uh, inappropriate to a particular situation. When we used to do that in university. I'm an independent person and I'm this way and you have to accept me as I am and, and assert yourself and defend yourself and don't, don't be phony or false and um, this idea of being really yourself and not bending it or compromising it for anything or anyone and uh, trying to live that way a pain in the neck, isn't it? Just uh, people like that are uh, are really uh, not very nice to live with because they're they're, they're not they're, they're just they're holding on to an identity that isn't uh, is usually not very appropriate to any given situation. It's just a, a fixation and an attachment in their own mind. But when we let go of that need and that, that grasping of a self, then we flow, we, we, we have amazing kind of flexibility, adaptability, malleability. The human mind is, is universal mind. We're, we're, not, we're, we're not buying a set of conditions and, and hanging on, but we, have the, we can look at things from all different angles and perspectives. And we have uh, we have increasing confidence too. Uh, they respond to life in the right way. And what is that? Uh, compassionately, lovingly, joyfully, peacefully, because that comes from the from the heart, from the pure heart of an individual, not from the uh, conditioned views and opinions uh, out of the head. Do you notice how easy it is to say? We must be compassionate for all the for people, and then, in a in a particular situation, not be compassionate at all. Easy to say. We should love all beings and and uh, feel compassion and forgive everyone. And then something happens in our own life that really throws us off, and we find ourselves reacting in a very inadequate and uh, uncompassionate way. Why is that? <laughs> that we, those, are, those are the experiences of life we work with, isn't it? We need to, to see that um, the more we accept what we're feeling and, uh, and not be frightened by it, 
the more we can resolve these these emotions, immature reactions to life, and then our response to life will be increasingly more from that universal place of metta, of loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, joy, and upeka, uh, equanimity. Bhūvālaṅgaksā sādhu kārāṅ dhadhammāsai